Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Trump's entire plan for re-election is about delegitimizing voting, uh, particularly voting by mail, frightening people, and hoping that that has a suppressive effect on the electorate, because I think he thinks that if everyone who wants to vote votes, he loses big. And so it's a pretty cynical game he's playing, but I think that's the game. That's Mark Elias. As perhaps the top election lawyer for Democrats for nearly two decades, he's overseen recount fights for United States senators and served as campaign general counsel for both John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. Now Mark is playing a key role in the Biden campaign's legal war room. It's his job to make sure that every vote is counted and that the Republicans don't get away with any mischief. Mark joins me today to answer all your questions around voting, from mail-in ballots to the so-called red mirage. And we talk about the various ways that President Trump could try to undermine the election results and how to make sure that doesn't happen. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Dana Phelan. If the Senate Judiciary Committee doesn't have the votes in person to pass her out of committee, how can they rush this? Hashtag Aspreet. I suppose by her, you're referring to the nominee to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. Well, first of all, it seems at this point that they will have the votes. There are two Republican senators who are on the Judiciary Committee, Tom Tillis and Mike Lee, who have contracted coronavirus and are at this moment quarantining. But at least Mike Lee, if not both Lee and Tillis have said they are coming back for the hearings, which begin on Monday, October 12th. So if that happens and they are present, they would have all the votes they need in person, 12 Republicans, 10 Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And even if they're not able to come back, there have been Judiciary Committee meetings and hearings that have occurred over the last few months during the pandemic remotely, where either one or more senators appears remotely, or maybe even the nominee appears remotely. And in that case, whether or not Tom Tillis and Mike Lee have finished their quarantine, they would be able to participate in the hearings. And then most importantly, the vote in the committee wouldn't happen for several more days, by which time the 14 days will have elapsed. And in any event, although this is not allowed on the floor of the Senate, proxy voting is allowed in the committee. So Tom Tillis and Mike Lee can just simply give their votes to Lindsey Graham and accomplish what will likely be a 12 to 10 ultimate vote for Amy Coney Barrett in the committee. This question about Trump's taxes comes from Twitter user Pratik Single. Based on the latest New York Times report, do you think there is probable cause for bank fraud or tax fraud, or does it appear to be just a political issue rather than a legal one? Love your show. Hashtag Aspreet. Well, thanks for the compliment about the show. Obviously, you're referring to that New York Times report that came out 71 years ago. Oh, no. It was like nine or 10 days ago that suggested that Donald Trump or that reported that Donald Trump has paid barely anything in taxes over the last number of years, some years paying as little as $750 and some years paying actually zero in federal income tax. There's also reporting that Donald Trump owes up to $421 million to unknown and unidentified lenders. 
There is a suggestion that in various transactions, perhaps, he has overstated his monetary worth or his financial wherewithal in order to get credit and loans. So to go to your question about bank fraud and tax fraud, although lots of people want to draw that conclusion based on the New York Times report, I don't see anything in the New York Times report that by itself and on its face gives you probable cause for bank fraud and tax fraud. A probable cause is a term of art. If you have probable cause in our system, that's enough evidence to actually make an arrest. And I don't think there's an arrest that's about to be made. It does raise questions and it does raise suspicions about how Donald Trump handled his finances. There is a clear record of tax avoidance, which is not unlawful. I think there would need to be more investigation to find out if there was tax evasion, which is not lawful. What we do know is that Cy Vance, the Manhattan district attorney, has been looking at the Trump financial situation for some time, and there's been suggestion and reporting that he may be looking at that. And what the New York Times focused on was tax information. And I think to make out a case of bank fraud of the type that seems to be suggested, you would not only need the tax information to figure out what the financial wherewithal and standing of Donald Trump might be, but also need to figure out what the representations have been to outside financial institutions. And if you combine those two things and you see there was a fraudulent representation about Donald Trump's financial standing in order to get some benefit from a bank, then you would have potentially the makings of a bank fraud case. But I think from the New York Times article alone, it is something that should launch an investigation or further an investigation that's already underway, like the one inside Vance's office, but alone doesn't set out a case for bank fraud or tax fraud. And by the way, just as I'm recording this, a few minutes before I started recording this, the news came that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals has once again ruled in favor of the Manhattan DA insofar as he can get information, financial tax information from Donald Trump's accountants. You'll remember that went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sent it back to the district court. Trump's lawyers continued to fight it in the district court, lost there. They have now lost again in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And as I understand it, Cy Vance is waiting to enforce the subpoena until Donald Trump makes his hopefully final last stop at the Supreme Court once again. This question comes from Twitter user BRX False Arrest. I like your Twitter handle. Hashtag Ask Preet, what's the best argument for nominee Barrett to recuse herself from a future Trump versus Biden? And what's the best argument for making her answer the recusal question at her hearing? Asking for a certain chief justice who wants to maintain the integrity of the court. Thanks for your question. It's one that's come up on the show and it comes up all the time when people are talking about how the confirmation hearing will unfold for Amy Coney Barrett. As we've discussed on the show before, there's very little anyone can do to compel a Supreme Court justice to recuse themselves. There have been cases of recusal. We've mentioned the case of Clarence Thomas, recused himself from the famous Virginia Military Institute case, whose majority opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because Clarence Thomas's son was a student at that institution at the time. And there have been cases when sitting members of the Supreme Court had been involved in a particular litigation earlier on, like Elena Kagan, when she was Solicitor General in the Obama administration. And there's some other examples of those sorts of things, but this is self-policing. There's no higher arbiter to whom a recusal decision or a non-recusal decision can be appealed. So what you're left to in the confirmation hearing is political argument and persuasive argument to try to convince Amy Coney Barrett to recuse herself should there be an occasion for her to be the deciding vote on some election-related matter. Now, one thing is, as you will hear in the interview with Mark Elias, although people are freaking out about this possibility of an election-related Supreme Court case that could give the presidency back to Donald Trump, the likelihood of that is not high. It would require an extraordinary set of circumstances and a narrow victory, the narrowest of victories in a particular state, for it to wind up in the Supreme Court and for Amy Coney Barrett to be in that position. There are also people who argue that even if there's not a ninth justice, 
you basically have on an election-related matter, likely a 5-3 court with John Roberts in the five. And so the addition of Amy Coney Barrett just makes it 6-3. It doesn't break a 4-4 tie. But notwithstanding that, I think the best argument for why she should recuse herself and why she should be made to answer the recusal question is an appearance one. And it also relates to the integrity of the court and people's faith in the court. You have to think about the context in which we're finding ourselves. The election isn't coming up. The election is going on right now. In fact, voting began before Amy Coney Barrett was even nominated to the Supreme Court. And you have the President of the United States saying openly and notoriously over and over again that one of the reasons he wants Amy Coney Barrett to be confirmed before the election is to have nine Supreme Court justices, and he says this explicitly, to decide any election-related case. And what does he mean by that? He means decide in his favor because he assumes, like he assumes in all instances, that people who he puts in positions of power, whether they're U.S. attorneys or attorneys general, are loyal to him. He has no doubt in his mind that if it came down to it, the mere fact of his nominating Amy Coney Barrett will be the deciding factor in how she comes out on any issue. He doesn't have this concept of neutral application of the law. In his mind, he wants the Ninth Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, to be there for precisely this reason, to help him win the election. Whether or not that's true, whether or not that makes sense, that is what he wants. And there are other people who are allies of the president, including Ted Cruz, who says over and over and over again, we need that Ninth Justice to decide the election. So this may not be the fault of Amy Coney Barrett, although some people fault her for even accepting the nomination under these circumstances. But the person who nominated her and other people who have pledged their support for her are putting her in the position of looking like, if such a case comes before her, of looking like she's going to put the thumb on the scale for the president. And to remove any doubt about that and to remove the bad taste in people's mouths about that eventuality, she should commit to recusing herself. And I think the Democrats are right to press her on it. Because what will happen to respect for the court already in decline? If there comes a moment when Amy Coney Barrett becomes potentially the deciding vote on an election-related matter, after all this debate and argument has taken place, and after the president has telegraphed that that's the reason he wants her on the court, that's my best answer. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. My guest this week is Mark Elias. Mark is the go-to Democratic election lawyer in the country. As the chair of the election law practice at Perkins Coie, he represents nearly every Democrat in Washington. Mark is involved in 36 active lawsuits to protect voting rights. And he's also leading the Biden campaign's state-by-state vote-counting operation. 
Mark Elias, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I should point out to folks that we go we go way back from my time in the in the Senate back in I think 2005 when I think you helped me understand for the first time how certain certain campaign finance laws work. So I want to I want to thank you for I think multiple tutorials you gave me back in the 2000 aughts. I think that that's I think that's right. Although I don't think you should thank me for knowing knowing that. <laughs> It was pretty arcane, as I recall. I mean, I thought I thought I, I thought I knew, understood aspects of the law fairly well when I came there. I had been in AUSA for five years, but campaign finance stuff made my head spin more than almost anything else I worked on in the Senate. Yeah, it's a it's a very um, it's a complicated area of the law, both because it's heavily regulatory and also because the courts have been so active in rewriting um, so many of the campaign finance laws. So it's one of these areas where you look at the statute and it bears very little resemblance to what the actual law uh, in practice winds up being. Can I ask you a question? How are you even able to do this podcast? Shouldn't you be in court? So, um, (laughs) like, like what do you, I mean, I, I don't mean to be overly humble, but, you know, there's lots of cases going on. What What are you doing here? Yeah, so um, we have uh, 36 cases pending uh, in federal and state court. Um, The good news is that I've got a big team of lawyers who are working with me, so that's that's good. Um, The bad news, which um, has actually facilitated this, uh, is COVID, which so that so many of the court appearances now are are remote. So the days of having to jump from plane to plane to go to courthouses is. is on is on hold. It reminds me of the time when I was the U.S. attorney and I was getting off the train at Grand Central and it was in the midst of this big insider trading trial, one of the big uh, early ones against Roger, Roger Rutnam. And a guy, the commuter comes up to me and he says, aren't you that guy Preet Bharara? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, what are you doing here? Because I think it was like 940 in the morning. <laughs> You're late. <laughs> and, and he said, shouldn't you be in court? I said, what? He's like that guy, that insider trading guy. And I said, Roger, Roger Rutnam. He's like, yeah, shouldn't you be in court? And I said, I've got people. I've got people. I've got people for that. So you have a lot of people too, Mark. Yeah. How many people? How many people do you have? So um, our my group is 50, is fifty three lawyers, but we actually have more than that right now working on different aspects of different cases. So we, we have a lot of things to talk about. You and I um, had a conversation a few weeks ago in which you scared the bejesus out of me. And I wanted to, and I wanted to. And it's the only reason how, why you had me on your podcast. Well, I thought, well, I, well, I, look, one reason you're on obviously is because you're the, you know, the nation's foremost expert on a lot of these issues on voting and everything else. And you're fighting hard to make sure that every vote counts, particularly democratic votes. Um, but also you're very blunt. We're recording this on Monday, 29 days before the election, October 5th, uh, not before the election, before the election ends, I should say, to be more accurate. And I think people need to understand what's at stake, not just what's at stake, but how things can go wrong and how they can most effectively make sure that their vote counts and other people's votes count. So can we dive into one of the thickets? Sure. Mail-in voting. Yeah. And there are a lot of pitfalls to mail-in voting. So I thought we'd, we'd go through some of them. So as an initial matter, millions of mail-in votes have already been cast, right? Correct. How is that going so far from your perspective? You know, as you point out, millions of, of people have already gotten and filled out and returned their their mail-in or absentee ballots. And contrary to what the president was saying for a long time, those two terms are synonyms. The Republicans seem to now acknowledge that. So um, whether you call it absentee or mail-in, millions of ballots have been returned. Um, here's what we know. Um, number one, it does seem like um, there is uh, wide adoption of mail-in voting. Um, so the number of ballots that have been returned exceed by a multiple 
the comparable numbers four years ago or two years ago. Uh, they do. They seem to be more democratic. In other words, more registered Democrats are voting by mail or returning mail-in ballots than Republicans. And in the states, and in the states that we have data from, you know, we are tracking rejection rates. And I think that that that's an important thing for people to to keep in mind is that when you vote in person, the chances that your ballot in person doesn't count are infinitesimally small. When you vote by mail some number of ballots that get cast by mail wind up getting rejected. And that's what a lot of the focus of the litigation I've been involved in is on. And it's, um, you know, it's something when you look at the primary data uh, in different states, you saw some states had alarmingly high rates of rejections. Others had more typical rates. I want to get to the rejection issues in a second. But first, the divergence between voting by mail for Democrats and Republicans. What do you attribute that to? It's really an interesting phenomenon. I attribute it mostly to the president's misinformation and um, rhetoric. Um, The truth is, historically, there has not been um, a partisan benefit to voting by mail, um, and there really hasn't been a partisan divide as to um, who votes more by mail. You know, you tend to older voters uh, oftentimes vote more by mail, and they have in recent years trended Republican. On the other hand, Democrats have tended to, in very recent times, advocate um, that their voters vote by mail. So you've seen more Democratic uh, mail voting, but it's usually a pretty narrow window uh, or narrow gap between the two parties that vary state by state. This election cycle, that is not true. And it's almost certainly attributable to the fact that the president told so many lies and tried to badmouth voting by mail so aggressively. Have you seen a change in the trend? because of the president saying what he's saying and because of concern that we're going to get to in a few minutes about how ultimately some mail-in votes may not be counted. Uh, I'll give you an example of my own family. You know, we were going to vote by mail. We had the luxury of being able to um, to vote early in, this, in New York State and plan to do that in person. Are you seeing a shift back on the part of Democrats to voting early in person versus voting by mail, or is the trend line continued? It's really hard to tell. I mean, we are still 29 days as of today when this is being recorded. We're still a month out from the election. So, you know, it's hard to know how many people get a mail ballot and then just decide to turn it in and vote in person instead. And we won't know that until early voting really becomes more widely available in more states. Right now, you know, there are only a handful of states that are that are doing early voting. So we won't really know until that period begins as to how much you, we will see definitely for sure. I mean, even absent the president's rhetoric, you know, you always have some people who get a mail ballot and then just decide at the last minute or not necessarily last minute, you know, what I can vote in person. So I'll show up. Yeah. I mean, you might drive by and see what the line looks like. Yeah, no, that's right. Okay. So, so rejection of mail-in ballots, what are the primary reasons why a mail-in ballot would get rejected? And then of course, could you address the circumstances in which that disproportionately affects, as I understand it, black voters, women voters, and young voters? Yeah. So the biggest reason across the board why mail ballots are uh, rejected is late received. So they they simply come in too late. And there are, in rough strokes, there are two kinds of states. There are states where if your ballot is postmarked by election day, it counts, and states where it has to be received by election day, regardless of when it was mailed. 
And particularly in those states that have that second rule where it has to be uh, received by election day, we tend to see large numbers of mail-in votes that are rejected because they simply arrived too late. So to put some numbers or perspective on that, in uh, in the Wisconsin primary election in April, uh, we sued over this, this issue, uh, over whether ballots had to be postmarked by election day or received by election day. Wisconsin law says it has to be received by election day. We sued to say it should be postmarked by election day. That issue went up to the Supreme Court. We won on that, on that one issue. And the net result was that 80,000 votes counted that wouldn't have. Um, it's actually a really interesting election to study, and I think social scientists will study it because it's it's an example of because the the postmark rule was adopted by the court so late in the process, it's a really good measure of how many votes, what what the effect is of the switch in that rule. You know, 80,000 votes in a primary is a lot of votes. So did that change the outcome in any race? Um, I don't know, actually. I never went back and looked. Uh, you know, it was a it, there was a judicial election um, uh, for Supreme Court justice. But then there were local elections. And I don't know. But it but it very well could have. Yeah. Um, but but the other thing you say, Preet, though, which I think is important, is that it would be a problem for our democracy if we had. Um, say, a 1% rejection rate, which is the typical rejection rate of mail ballots in a normal year. This is not a normal year. That would be, you know, sort of not great for democracy. I wrote a, an article talking about the epidemic of uncounted ballots um, and how that's that's not good for democracy. I wrote that back in January before the pandemic. But the problem is that when you look at who's compo- who's in that 1%, um, you find some alarming trends. So you all probably remember that in 2018, there was a close Senate election in Florida. Bill Nelson lost by one-tenth of a percent to Rick Scott. And there was a close uh, gubernatorial election. Andrew Gillum lost by four-tenths of a percent to uh, DeSantis. A bunch of political scientists went back and looked at the data of the rejections in that election. Now, that was before COVID. That was before any of this, right? Um, It was a midterm election, but Florida's got you know, pretty active vote by mail availability. And what they found was that if you were 18 to 21, the rate of rejection was 5.4%. If you were over 65, it was 0.6%. If you were black or Latinx, your rate of rejection was over 2%, close to 2.5% in some instances. Uh, If you were white, it was under 1%. So we simply weren't rejecting these ballots at the same rates. So it had a distortive effect. The rejection rules had a distortive effect in disadvantaging young voters and voters of color relative to older voters and white voters. Um, Can I ask a preliminary question? So when the ballot is received, on the face of the ballot, one does not know the age of the voter or the race or ethnicity of the voter, right? Well, you don't typically, you won't know the age of the voter typically. But, you know, race and, and ethnicity can be you know, sometimes imputed just by looking at- Deduced from names. Yes, exactly. But let's do the easier one first, or maybe the harder one. Why are young people being rejected at such a high rate? So the I mentioned that late received is the most common reason. The other reasons for rejection are in most states, uh, not every state, but most states uh, are signature matching issues. Um, if you've ever voted absentee, you sign- the outer envelope. Well, the reason why you sign that outer envelope, the return envelope, is that when your ballot is 
is processed by the county that it comes back to, the municipality, they compare the signature on the outer envelope with the signature on file. Now, again, this is not true in every state, but it's true in in many states, including Florida. And um, a surprising number of ballots in our elections are are discarded uh, because uh, the officials believe that the two signatures don't match. And particularly when you look at young voters, you oftentimes have both higher rates of rejection based on late received because they tend to vote their ballots later than older voters, but also signature matching uh, tends to disadvantage younger voters because they simply have not grown up in an age in which consistency of signature is um, is a main source of, of, um, of confirmation of identity. They don't write checks anymore. They don't write checks anymore, but even it's when all they- Venmo. You don't have to sign on the Venmo. Yeah, but even when they write checks, and I, I you know, hesitate to say this to the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, but, <laughs> uh, but, but my sense is that when I was growing up, at least I always believed that when I was growing up and you signed a check, there was actually some bank somewhere that was comparing the signature on the check with the signature on my account, and that clearly doesn't go on anymore, right? But and, I was I was worried about, and I and I also supposed in my head that you know all these people at these banks and other places were some form of signature or handwriting expert, which of course they are not, right? And the same with credit cards. Remember, you used to have to sign your credit card receipts, and they used to keep a copy of the the credit card receipt signature. Again, because there was some sense that that signature was going to be a important piece of the of the validation that it was your credit card or that you charged it, and that of course has become less common as well. So, to, just before we go on to what the other discrepancies are about, is the time for signature matching over? Is it obsolete, or is there any other way to deal with that? Yeah. So there are other ways that states deal with it. I do think that there is for 2020 the states that do signature matching verification that's going to be uh you know that's going to be in place. I think that I think you need to tackle signature verification in two in two buckets. The first is you need to recognize that there is a problem of over rejection of ballots based on signature matching. You know, I think and I could have this number off by a little bit but I think in the last election in Colorado they rejected 16,600 ballots based on signature match. And like, that's just not plausible that there were 16,000 people who cast a ballot uh, that it wasn't their ballot, right? right so, right. so, so we, number one, in the short term, we need to make sure that the people doing the signature matching are giving the benefit of the doubt to the voter and that individual people are not disenfranchising voters without uh, multiple levels of review. Right. So, you know, some states say they have to be reviewed by three people of different, and at least of one person of each party. That's one way to do it. Um, some build in actually a presumption of, of match. That's another way to do it. Um, so that's one, that's one piece of the equation. The other, which is the most important is that voters need to be notified that there is a discrepancy or alleged discrepancy and given an easy way to cure it. Um, in other words, a way to fix it. So um, in some states, believe it or not, if your ballot gets discarded based on signature match, they don't tell you. So you never know that your ballot didn't count. Uh, and that's wrong. Every state should have to tell you that your ballot is being questioned based on signature and give you an opportunity to contest that finding or to cure it by providing another signature. So that I think is uh, the important in the here and now, but there are longer range ways to to move from signature matching verification to other forms of verification. Right. So let's tell people who are young, between the ages of eighteen and twenty. I guess everyone, if you're voting by mail, develop a consistent signature. 
Yeah, or at least to use the same signature that you used when you registered and applied for the mail ballot. And one of the reasons why you see a greater rejection rate among young voters here is because very oftentimes young voters are registering on track pads or on um, digital devices, and therefore their signature doesn't look the same when they sign it with a wedding uh, paper and pen signature. All right, so so what about African-American voters? So... Um, there is data, and I don't want to. I don't want to overstate this because it, I've not seen a, I've not seen a peer-reviewed study that pulled this piece out. But there is clearly um, some aspect of signature matching rejection that is influenced by non-anglicized names. So it's not just African Americans; it's Hispanic surnames. It's Preparara, for that matter. Uh, that the more anglicized your name, the less often it is rejected based on signature matching uh, than uh, less anglicized names. Now, and that's some I, kind of innate bias, you think? Yeah, I think that yeah. that's something innate. That's something unconscious. Now, I mean, there are there are states where, you know, when this has been looked at, they've realized that the person doing the signature comparison, understand the person doing the signature comparison has the envelope in front of them, and then they have a screen image of the signatures on file. And there have been a couple of states where they've noticed that when they pull up those signatures on the screen, they are pulling up the full um, voter registration card, for example, that may have race uh, on it. Uh, I see. Uh, right. So, so it's important that states move away from providing those other kinds of cues of, of race or age or ethnicity, um, because there are states that maintain those, that, that data, uh, but it shouldn't be on, it shouldn't be available to the person doing this signature matching. The other issue facing minority voters in general is again, is the, is the issue of late received because, we know that there are, even when the Postal Service is working properly, we know there are differences in the mail delivery times from different zip codes. And oftentimes you see more affluent zip codes have faster mail delivery uh, than less affluent. So, you know, there are a lot of pieces that go into why mail ballots get voted later and get delivered later. Uh, but that would, I would say, would be the other the other big piece. Are you in a position to give advice to folks now as to whether they should vote by mail or vote early in person if they're able to, or do you stay away from that? Here's what I tell everyone, okay? Um, number one, the most important thing is to make sure you're registered and make sure you vote and make sure you vote early. Now, if you want to vote by mail, uh, it means you should apply for and get your mail ballot uh, as soon as you can and vote it as soon as you can and return it as soon as you can. Because to be honest with you, most of the problems we're talking about with mail balloting get cured or are curable if you cast your ballot early, right? The biggest problems we're talking about with mail ballots are things that happen when people wait and don't vote their mail ballot right away and they and then there is a problem and it's either too late to fix it or it arrives too late. So if you want to vote by mail, by all means vote by mail, but do it early. By if, what method? By what method should they return their mail vote? If it's early enough, the postal service is fine. Um, if you have a Dropbox available in your community, Dropboxes are ideal because uh, they get picked up directly by the election officials. Some people will hand them in uh, directly to the uh, the county and states where that's allowed. But the key is to do it early because that will make sure it gets in on time and gets processed on time. If, on the other hand, you are someone who prefers to vote in person or you have the ability to vote in person, there's no question that voting in person is going to lower the risk of rejection to almost zero. 
um, almost zero. I'm not, I never say anything zero, but but you know, voting in person is obviously going to you're going to by the t- by the time you walk out of that that voting booth, you're going to know, or certainly out of the polling place, you're likely to have seen your ballot go into a machine and counted. So um, for people who don't want to rely on the mail service or rely on dropping off a mail-in ballot or or all of that, voting in person is always going to be, in some sense, a better alternative. Now, again, though, I would caution you that that's a great alternative if you're going to do it early. So if you're in a state that has early uh, in-person uh, voting, you know, by all means, that's a great solution. It may be the best solution. Um, if you, if it's only election day, I worry about people. You know, it's raining on election day, or yeah. you wind up with a with some issue on election day, and then you wind up not voting at all. So my my key message is vote is register, vote, and vote early, either in person or by mail. What about some of these other issues that are relevant in certain states? Are there some places still where an absentee ballot needs to have a, a witness? Yeah. Um, talk about a arcane requirement that really tr- is unnecessary and trips up voters. Um, there are states that have witnessing requirements. Um, we have um, sued a number of those states. Uh, we sued Minnesota and, and uh, entered into a consent decree to suspend their uh, witness requirement for for this election cycle due to COVID. We actually have a case any moment uh, could get a ruling on in the U.S. Supreme Court. We sued South Carolina and the uh, federal court there struck down their witness requirement because of COVID-related um, issues. Uh, the Fourth Circuit and Bank affirmed that, and uh, the Republicans have sought cert and emergency stay in the U.S. Supreme Court. In North Carolina, we sued over the witness requirement. Um, uh, we entered a consent decree, which was entered last Friday at 2. federal court then uh, enjoined that on a, or, or entered a TRO against that. Uh, at five o'clock on on Friday, so I just saw just before we started, uh, the state of North Carolina has filed an appeal uh, in that case. So there's a lot going on in terms of of witness requirements in court. Virginia actually entered a consent decree with a with uh, I think the uh, ACLU uh, or the Lawyers Committee to suspend their witness requirement. But there are lots of states that still have witness requirements, and they really do affect the ability of of voters to vote because in the age of COVID, telling people that they need to go find <laughs> someone come over to watch them sign- to witness right. their signature, right? It's not it's not like you can just like, you know, understand that to properly witness a ballot, it's not like you sign it and then you send it over to someone to sign. They're actually supposed to be standing net close enough to you to see you sign the ballot. And know you personally. You can't just get a stranger. That's, that's right. Or it's, actually, it's like being a notary. It's like deputizing a notary, right? In Oklahoma, you need a notary. Um, oh, you do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Anything that ever required a notary in my life, I just, I just gave up on the thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just, I, I'm just not going to get that thing that requires a notary. Yeah. It's really. Um, I mean, you know this from from your work. Uh, it's really interesting because, like, the federal courts have largely moved away, or not even largely. Have, really entirely moved away from notarizing requirements, uh, except for limited number of things like, you know, proc motions and the like. But, you know, there's the idea of the self-affirmation under oath or sworn affirmation has replaced it. And I'm not sure why that's not more prevalent. Talk about the issue of um, so-called naked ballots. What's a naked ballot? Yeah, so naked ballots, um, for those of you who, again, have voted absentee in many jurisdictions, many states, you fill out the ballot. You then put it inside 
an inner envelope, sometimes referred to as a security envelope. And then you put that envelope inside the outer envelope and sometimes referred to as the mailing envelope. So you fill out the ballot, you put it inside essentially a blank envelope, and then that blank envelope inside the envelope that you fill out the information on the back of. The theory of those of that inner envelope is to ensure that when the person who opens the outer envelope takes out your ballot, they don't see who you voted for. So because your name is on the outside of the outer envelope, it's a way of giving you the security that no one knows who's who you voted for. It's, it's meant to protect the voter. Oddly enough, in Pennsylvania, the Republicans have turned what is really intended to be the protection to the voter to, of their secrecy of their ballot. They've turned it into a way to try to disqualify mail voting, mail ballots by saying that if the ballot does not come in an inner security envelope, then the ballot doesn't count. So essentially, that is what is referred to as a naked ballot. It is a ballot that is in the return envelope, but is not inside this inner security envelope. It is therefore naked inside the outer envelope. Um, The notion that we should therefore disenfranchise the voter because there's a theoretical risk that the person opening the outer envelope would see who they voted for seems like a perverse uh, remedy. <laughs> because it's not a question of fraud. It's, it's, a, it's a mistake made by the voter that only potentially and hypothetically harms the voter. Correct. That's the key, right? When we say it's a mistake made by the voter, like it's in some sense, yeah, it is a mistake made by them. But honestly, like the voter may not care if the person opening the envelope knows who they well, voted Many for. people don't. Um, I, I don't mind if the whole world knows that I plan to vote not for the Trump guy. Yeah. So it's a really weird. So yeah. So it's a really weird remedy to then say we're going to disenfranchise that voter. But what's the philosophy there? So it would seem that the issue is nonpartisan. It has nothing to do with ideology. Is there a presumption then that Republicans are making in trying to get those ballots rejected because they believe that the mistake is more likely to be made by a Democratic voter? I mean, that is the that is the political calculus behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important that you. So it's very insulting also. Yes. I think it's I think it's very important that which, you know, your question is insightful as always, that people understand that that the arguments that the Republicans are making in court, none of them are ideological. They are all just political. I mean, they sue to prevent states from sending out mail ballots. They sue to prevent states from providing drop boxes. They sue to prevent states from counting ballots that are postmarked by election day. They sue to prevent uh, states from uh, in hi- from stopping there from being long lines. They sue. I, there's no form of voting in which they are saying this is good and therefore we need more of it. I've joked before that if there was any lawsuit where there was any barrier to voting that Republicans wanted struck down, I'd probably join them. But there isn't. There's no. <laughs> there's no aspect of the voting process that they aren't seeking to make more difficult. What's the issue uh, related to ballot harvesting, so-called ballot harvesting? Yeah, ballot harvesting is a is a misnomer. It's a pejorative that Republicans have used for the practice of third-party ballot collection. The idea is that some voters who don't have regular access to mail service or don't trust the mail would prefer to have someone who they do trust deliver their ballot um, in person to the election officials or drop it in the mail. So you know, the other day um, uh, I voted by by mail um, and uh, I, for a moment, was uh, had uh, talked to my wife about her taking my ballot and dropping it off. And then I realized that Virginia law doesn't allow third-party ballot collection. So instead, I uh, I went and, and 
took my own ballot to the to the post office and dropped it off myself. Her delivering that to the post office would have been a form of third-party ballot collection and delivery. Even to the post office, just to the post office. Sure. So one of the biggest issues of ballot collection that comes up is in uh, Native American communities where there's no on-reservation mail service. So what they will oftentimes want to do is have a essentially a collection point where people you know can come and drop off to uh, their mail ballots so that one individual can then drive oftentimes you know an hour or more to the local post office to then drop them off. That's not uncommon. We sued Arizona and struck down their ban on third party ballot collection. It's a case of the US Supreme Court just granted cert on. Um, so that case will be heard uh, heard this term, probably uh, be argued sometime in January. The issue involved both Native Americans, but also um, rural Latino populations uh, that, that used it as a means to make sure their ballots got in. We sued uh, Montana in a parallel lawsuit to a lawsuit filed by the five Native American tribes where they made exactly the point I just laid out, which is that for on-reservation Native Americans in Montana, this is really the difference between being able to vote and not being able to vote. So the, the upshot for this election, given the great shift, particularly among Democrats, to mail-in voting, will be, as you and I have discussed, and as people have been discussing on on television and in the news, that on November 3rd, because of this uh, skewing of the vote towards mail by Democrats, and given the way that most states count votes and by what priority, in other words, prioritizing in-person voting on election day uh, versus mail-in voting in most states, that it will look, and some people have called this the red mirage, it will look on November 3rd in the evening that Donald Trump is leading in lots of places and leading nationally. You told me a few weeks ago that you predicted he would be leading by a lot. What's your prediction today as to what the official count will look like on the evening of November 3rd? So, look, I, I mean, it's it varies a little state by state, but I think that in the main, you are correct. Now, there are a couple of important states that are exceptions to that, including Florida, uh, Florida actually does a really good job of processing their mail ballots. Not all, they won't do 100% of them by election day, but they will have processed a lot, a lot of the mail ballots um, before election day. So you could very well see um, if uh, Vice President Biden wins Florida um, on election night, the rest of the election coverage looks very, very different because uh, it's hard to imagine a world in which he wins Florida and and, doesn't and, and is the, trailing in New York or something. Like <laughs> yeah, that. right. And doesn't win the win the whole thing. But you look at other states like Pennsylvania, where they don't start processing um, absent a change in the law, which is still possible. But you know, we're getting close there. Where they don't process the mail ballots at all until the polls close, or they don't start opening counting them until the polls close. Then the election, the results you'll see on election night are going to be just the in-person voting. And if, in fact, you have Democrats voting at a much higher rate by mail and Republicans voting by higher rate in person, it's going to look on election night like Donald Trump has won a resounding victory in Pennsylvania when that isn't true. Right. And he's counting on that. He's gaming. He's gaming for that, right? He Look, I think that he is. I think that that Trump's entire plan for re-election is about delegitimizing voting, uh, particularly voting by mail, frightening people and hoping that that has a suppressive effect on the electorate, because I think he thinks that if everyone who wants to vote votes, he loses big. And so it's a pretty cynical game he's playing, but I think that's the game. So you don't want to give me a number as to what the race will look like on that Tuesday night? 
I don't because I don't know because because again, can I give you some choices is it, because because it's startling when I hear people talk about this because everyone expects it to be you know somewhat close. It's typically been close uh, in in prior elections. The electoral college aside, is it feasible that Donald Trump could ultimately lose the election if all the votes are able to be counted, but on election night? Look like he's winning by eight, ten points. Sure, and in states like in states like Pennsylvania, where where they have would look like a landslide. Yeah, right. I mean, again, that won't be true in Florida, but sure, in some states that definitely could be true. Is Florida the only battleground state in which the mail-in ballots will be counted along the way? I think the other state to look at um, along the same lines would be North Carolina. Um, again, if Donald Trump loses North Carolina, then the then the race is over. So I, I hesitate to say battleground in the sense that they are must win for Trump. They are not must win for Biden, right? If you look at the if you look at the 2016 map for Hillary Clinton to have won, she needed to have won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Neither of those involved not her path to victory did not involve Florida or North Carolina. But those are two states that right now appear, at least based on public polls, to be very close. And if those two states went Biden or either of them went Biden, then it could be a much shorter night. Uh, you know, I, I, I think. I want to ask you about how the media is going to react to all this because, you know, we we've been talking in the realm of what the official vote is, but in most elections that you and I and our listeners have ever witnessed most, the race is called by some media organization or organizations, and then somebody concedes because they see the handwriting on the wall. It doesn't happen in very close races, but it happens in a lot of races. And that's before all the ballots have been counted. It's because people see a particular candidate for governor, for example, in a state on the Democratic side is ahead. There's all sorts of ballots that remain to be counted, but they come from liberal enclaves. So the presumption is, you know, people do some statistical analysis and they realize, you know what, there's no way that the Republican is going to pull it out, or it could be vice versa in a different kind of election. What is going to happen here, given my understanding, that I think you gave me this understanding, that while it is true that in many of these states, the absentee votes will not be counted until election day, there will be a record of who has mailed in an absentee vote, I think in in at least some states, if not many states. And given that that's public information, so for example, if Preet Bharara votes early in the New York state election, Will it be known to outsiders, media organizations, third parties, that I am known Democrat, I am a known proponent of Joe Biden, the fact that I cast my ballot must mean that it was a Biden vote. And if you take that uh, over time with respect to all the absentee ballots, doesn't a pretty clear picture potentially emerge as to how a candidate did in that state? Yeah. And this is, this is um, I think, going to be a challenge, as you say, for the media, because you know we are all used to the media having certain tools at their disposal. Number one, they have the unofficial returns as they start to come in, which, you know, is what we sometimes refer to as the AP numbers, but they are are not the certified numbers. The numbers you see on the screen, on TV screens or internet screens on election nights, those are not certified numbers. Those are unofficial returns coming in from the counties, uh, from the precincts to the counties and the counties to the state. So you'll have that data. The second is you'll be able to compare that data to historical data. So you'll know, okay, well, you know, of the in-person vote, you know, this is what this town was versus the past. You'll have exit polls, which, you know, people don't talk that much about anymore, but the networks are still going to do exit polls. And that will include 
both um, in-person and also vote-by-mail um, exit polls, which basically uh, they will be calling. This is all stuff that the networks and AP have announced. They'll be they'll making be making telephone calls. So they will have a data set of people who have told them who they voted for by absentee. And then finally, the networks will have what you just said, which is that they'll have, um, in most states, they'll have lists of who has returned an absentee ballot. Um, so they they will know whether of the absentee ballots that were that were requested, which of them were returned, and they will therefore be able to have some sense based on partisan affiliation of those voters and geographic affiliate and ge- geography of those voters. You know what the turnout was in New York City versus the turnout in Utica, New York, right? So, so they'll have all that those tools, and the question is. You know, we're used to, for those of us, uh, you know, who watch election night coverage, there is always this weird dance that you see where the where where the network anchors have access to the exit polls, but they don't say it until the polls close. So you kind of like try to read between the lines based on their body language, right? The problem is what happens when that's not one day, but that's, you know— two days or three days or four days. Like at some point, you know, the media yeah, I'm, is- I'm still talking about that night because I, I'm just, I'm just confused about this. Isn't it true that there are states and maybe one or more battleground states, or at least can you identify a state in which the following might be true, that the majority of votes, 50, 60% of the votes are cast by mail. A minority of the votes are cast in person. Donald Trump is leading in the official count because of the preponderance of Republicans who voted in person in that state. But because of general access to the, you know, the demographics and the party affiliations of the other 60 percent who voted by mail, though they're not counted yet, wouldn't a reasonable media outlet be able to predict that notwithstanding Donald Trump's five or six point hypothetical lead in the in-person voting tally, that he will lose? And will they be prepared to call it for Biden in that circumstance? Because that makes a big difference. That's the question. That is, I mean, you've, you've put your finger on it. There are states like that. I mean, frankly, New York may be one of those states. Uh, you know, Arizona is a state that is 70 percent, historically 70 percent vote by mail. So the 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 answer is yes. And, you know, if you go back to 2016, look at the network's coverage of Virginia, where uh, Trump did look like he was winning for uh, much of the evening. And the networks did, to their credit, eventually call Virginia for Clinton, even when it still looked like Trump was winning, because the, and this is this is a micro example of what you are referring to. Um, in Virginia, it's changed since then, but there, there, it used to be that, that vote by mail was the minority of voting in Virginia. They didn't have no excuse absentee voting, but a large number of people would still vote excuse absentee, particularly in Fairfax County, which is the largest county in the state. And so there was this thing called the the Fairfax CAP, the Central Absentee Precinct. It was the collection of all the mail-in votes in Fairfax County, which is the largest county in the state, a very Democratic county. And until you got the CAP number in, it looked like Donald Trump was winning. But anyone who knew that these were the people who had voted, you know, that there were, you know, I'm making up the number because I don't remember it, you know, 200,000 ballots in the Fairfax cap. And this was the demographics of who cast those ballots. You knew that the vote when those ballots came in were going to flip the results. And so are are we overly worrying about this? People keep talking about this issue of, I'm just, you know, posing, posing the hypothetical, 
that Donald Trump will declare victory and all the numbers will look like they're in, in, in his favor. But there will be lots of numbers and lots of data that will be in Biden's favor. And will it be up to the media ultimately or some other group you know, to cut through the nonsense on that evening? Not, not waiting a day or two or three days. I mean, if, if Biden goes into November 3rd with these same poll ratings, and let's assume they're accurate, Biden should be clearly winning in multiple battleground states and all the other states that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. And isn't it possible? I don't want to lower people's fears because I think fear is a good motivating factor, but just in terms of what the announcement will be. Isn't it also possible that we'll have a clear winner in Joe Biden on election day and not have to wait because of these predictive? It is possible. Yeah, yeah. it is definitely possible. And and again, I think that there is a chance that we do know on election night that Joe Biden has won. I worry that the media will give too much running room to President Trump. I mean, I can tell you because why? Because this is because it's a it's a new way of tabulating and no, predicting. No, because because I can tell you, I was in the sort of compound of or on the floor of suites in 2016, where Secretary Clinton um, was, and I don't want to suggest that I was playing a more central role than I was, but. It, it, in the discussions that took place, it never occurred to anyone to falsely claim victory simply to sow chaos. Like it never occurred to us th- <laughs> yeah. to say, let's just go to the Javits Center and say we won. Yeah. Right. And and so we've never had a candidate who's done that, right? Like when candidates lose, they concede, or at least they don't claim victory. Yeah. And so that's incredibly important. So everyone knows, because he's told us that no matter what happens, that Tuesday, he's going to declare victory. And I guess my question is, and if you could get a get a word to Joe, um, I'd be I'd be appreciative. If these other models show, I, I, I presume that Joe Biden will not concede if it's not clear. But if these other predictive models show that Biden is winning and has enough votes to get the electoral college, what is his trigger finger for declaring victory as opposed to simply avoiding concession? That I don't. That that I don't know. Um, I can't speak for the vice president or what he or his campaign would do. I, I can tell you that I think that if if it is, let's say that let's say it is clear to all that Vice President Biden has either won or is likely to win. Um, I think the question is, what is the media going to do if President Trump then announces to the media he's going on to declare victory? And that's, you know, not my business. I'm a lawyer. That's someone who's a media ethicist or a media person to figure out. But I do think that that's what makes Trump different than any other candidate, because I don't think we've had any other candidate or officeholder who approaches it the way he is. What are some of the things that you worry about post-November 3rd that the Trump administration, either through DHS or through the attorney general, might do to prevent the counting, especially of these absentee ballots? That might skew the result. So, look, my job is to worry about everything, uh, yeah. is to prepare for everything. But <laughs> thank but, you. Thank but you. to be honest with you, our elections are are largely decentralized. You know, the truth is, it's interesting. I I had a case in uh, in Florida that we won at the trial court, got reversed at the Eleventh Circuit, and the grounds for reversal at the Eleventh Circuit was that we had sued the Secretary of State, who is the chief elections officer. But the 11th Circuit found that, the, notwithstanding them being the chief election, elections officer, uh, she was actually not empowered to run elections in, in uh, Florida and that I needed to have sued uh, all 67 counties. 
uh, because it's actually, they're run by counties. Now, I, I happen to think that, you know, we're now seeking uh, en banc review of that panel decision because I don't think it's correct. But it does get to, a, there is a kernel of something there, which is that, you know, DHS doesn't run elections. You know, the attorney general, as you know, uh, having been U.S. attorney, you really didn't have authority over the conduct of elections. Yes, but they, but can they seize authority in peculiar circumstances to interfere with an election? You know, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, again, you know, th- this is something everyone's got to, you know, pay people who are who are paid to worry about the worst of the worst, you know, will will game this out and figure out what the counter plans are. But, you know, th- my experience is that the the local elections official in, you know, Leon County, uh, Florida, kind of runs the elections in Leon County, Florida, and oftentimes doesn't even listen to what the state says. And, you know, the the states are given the constitutional power to run elections. And though Congress is given an override authority, uh, that override authority is given to Congress. It's not given to the president, it's not given to the attorney general, it's not given to, um, uh, it's not given to DHS. So, you know, again, I don't want to be, I don't want to have rose-colored glasses on. I realize, you know, as I've said to many people, Donald Trump is is shameless and therefore he's dangerous because when you have no shame, you're willing to do anything. Um, but I do think that the court system and the local election officials would balk at the idea that the federal government's ability to disrupt local election officials from doing what is their constitutional obligation and right. What about this issue that some people are speculating about that allows state delegations to maybe change the result of the election and throw it to the House? I think you're, you mean state legislatures. Yes, yes. Yeah. Again, I think that that would run into really serious constitutional problems. Um, there is a, certainly a question as to whether states need to hold presidential elections. In other words, could the could a state simply choose to slate its own electors um, without holding a presidential election? Uh, an interesting question, um, but not one that we face, <laughs> since every state currently is holding is planning on holding an election and confident that's going to happen. Um, I think once they've held that election, I think the ability of the state legislatures to step in becomes harder. And of course, you have governor, you have you have Democratic governors in Michigan and in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and North Carolina. So I think I think there'll be chatter about that. I think it's a legitimate, you know, thing for for people to be prepared for. My main focus right now is making sure everyone registers to vote and votes um, and then make sure their vote counts. Um, And that's really where I'm spending my my time and effort. Is there a particular state or two where you think the efforts are most important? Yeah, um, I think, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, not just because they're traditional battlegrounds, but because they are states that do not have, particularly Pennsylvania and Michigan, do not have histories of large numbers of people voting by mail. So I focus on states that are essentially adapting to COVID by having to really adapt to COVID. A state like Florida, you know, though run by a Republican governor, Republican secretary of state, and certainly Republicans I have sued and have profound disagreements with on a number of things, they they have a population that is use, that is accustomed to early voting and accustomed to vote by mail and have county officials who are accustomed to those things. So I worry more in the states 
where these are new processes um, and therefore they're having to be developed. New York, you know, uh, was not a shining uh, example always of of expansion of vote by mail. So I hope I hope that goes well um, now that it is uh, expanded. Um, you know, I worry more about those states based on experience. Can we talk about one case that uh, we were talking about before we came on that is very angering to a lot of folks? And that's the, the drop-off issue in Texas, where you have these large counties, you know, some counties as large as some American states, where there had been multiple drop-off locations for people to um, deliver their absentee ballots. And the governor seems the governor seems unilaterally in various places to be reducing those drop-off locations to one spot. How bad is that? And what are we, what are you doing about it? Yeah, so it's terrible. Number one, number two, it actually proves the 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 sort of the limitless effort by Republicans to make voting harder. So let's just start at the beginning, right? So first, the Republicans said, if you vote by mail, uh, we don't want third party ballot collection, right? We don't want what they refer to as ballot harvesting. We don't want people handing off their ballots to others to be delivered. We want voters to have to vote deliver and deliver their own ballot. Great. Then they sued Pennsylvania because they didn't want drop boxes. Okay, they sued Pennsylvania because they didn't want drop boxes. The Republican governor of, of, uh, uh, sorry, Republican Secretary of State of Ohio cut back on the number of drop boxes. Uh, Iowa cut uh, Republican Secretary of State in Iowa cut back on drop boxes. Right, I didn't have war on drop boxes on my 2020 voter suppression bingo card. But fine. We then got to the place where Republicans don't want drop boxes because they said drop boxes are insecure, they're unmanned, they're, you know, standing out there in the public for people to use. So now we've reached the point where voters are like, okay, I'm going to actually hand in my ballot in person to an election official, right? No third party, no drop box. Like it's literally from me to the election official. And the governor of Texas is now limiting that saying, well, you can only have that in one place per county. Well, what the heck is that about? <laughs> right? I mean, like, what, like, like, at some point, how do they want people to get their ballots back? Right? Like, like you, you, you know, they, they, are, they are narrowing and narrowing the ways in which voters can make sure their ballots get in on time. So, so we are suing um, over this. Are you going to win that one? I, I, God, I hope so. I hope so. You know, the courts are... You know, we've had a, a number of cases in Texas where we wanted the trial court, and the Fifth Circuit has been a challenge. Um, but if ever there was something that you would think everyone could agree on, it would be that people being able to hand in their completed ballot in person to an election official should not be limited. Yeah, clear evidence of bad faith. So a parlor game has been, not a parlor game, I don't mean to minimize the issue, but we have a Supreme Court vacancy. And Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and others keep saying, well, we need to have a full nine justice court to deal with whatever contests will occur legally over the election. Everyone's predicting that there will be some. You know that better than anybody. But I don't hear many people talking about what what is the thing, what is the scenario or scenarios, plural, you think will actually make its way to the Supreme Court? What's a credible posture for there to be in the period after November 3rd in which the Supreme Court might decide who won the election? Look, so one of the good news stories of there being so much uh, litigation before Election Day is that hopefully there will be less litigation after Election Day, right? So a lot of the litigation, when I say that we're litigating, you know, 35 cases, uh, a lot of that is that at least the courts are considering pre-election what some of these balls and strikes are. And even though I may not always like the way 
those calls are made. It is better for those to be made in advance of Election Day than after Election Day for a variety of reasons, um, timing being one of them, the fact that rulings made after you know who the ballots have been cast for you know, present different challenges, voters can't conform to it, right? So it doesn't mean there won't be post-election litigation or that there isn't, won't necessarily be a need for it, but hopefully one of the good news stories is that some of this stuff is being done now. The stuff that tends to be litigated post-election tends to be over the way in which ballots are being treated. So obviously the most famous case, Bush versus Gore, dealt with, you know, um, whether there could be a recount, a partial recount of the state involving the so-called hanging Chad ballots. You know, very, very infrequently do cases generate that kind of attention that they go all the way to the Supreme Court. But, you know, in every post-election, there are some number of cases that get filed because there is some oddball circumstance or some set of unforeseen um, events over the counting of ballots um, that that takes place. For it to be another Bush versus Gore, the election has to be exceedingly close and it has to be in a, in a pivotal state. So I never say never. Um, and certainly every two years I prepare for that. And we've had some very close elections in the Senate and some, you know, we had almost close election 2004 in Ohio or we had, I'm sorry, not almost, we had a close election rather in, in 2004. We almost won, is what I meant to say, in 2004 in Ohio. Um, and then obviously the three states in 2016. But, you know, that's, 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 I think, how I think of it. Wait, so that's encouraging because it seems like everyone is assuming for a fact that there's going to be a battle that goes to the Supreme Court in the case that it's a close election, which it may be. And you're not so sure about that. No, I'm saying that in order for it to be a close enough election for the courts to make a difference, it has to be a really close election. I mean, like not close as in like two points, close as in two-tenths of a point. And that's that's what I'm saying is that, you know, ultimately Senator Kerry lost in Ohio by 80,000 votes, and that was a close election. But it was not a close enough that any particular court decision was going to change the outcome of the results. So, you know, remember in Florida in 2000, we were talking about less than a thousand votes at issue in, you know. Right. If there are people who are listening who want to be helpful to your efforts and efforts generally in the election, what is your advice to them? Should they become poll watchers? Should they become poll workers? Should they sign up if they're lawyers to volunteer for some efforts? Are you accepting volunteers? Yeah. So tell them, tell them what they can do. Yeah. So here are a few things. The first is in 2018, Two-thirds of poll workers were over the age of 60 and a quarter were over the age of 70. And obviously, you can only open polling locations if you have sufficient number of poll workers. So there is a major push, which I completely uh, wholeheartedly engage in, to have people who are able and healthy and young to get trained as poll uh, workers. You can contact your local county officials and they can teach, they can tell you how to do that. There's an organization, great organization called Power the Polls. You can go to the, their website and sign up and they'll connect you with the right people. So for people who are willing to do that, that's great. Um, I have a website, democracydocket.com, where I track all of our litigation, put out good advice. We also have a place where people can sign up uh, for Power of the Polls, also uh, other uh, another organization called We the Action, which is for lawyers, or for our through our website, we people who sign up, we will also direct them in the right place. And what's your website? Say, say your website again. Democracydocket.com. And then finally, if you want to sign up for the Biden campaign's voter protection program, if you go to their website, um, there is a link where you can sign up whether you're a lawyer or a non-lawyer to be a poll uh, poll watcher or to otherwise um, help uh, uh, Vice President Biden's campaign. 
You're also a member of the special litigation team announced. It has, among other people, former Attorney General Eric Holder, your former partner, Bob Bauer. How is that separate from the efforts that you've been undertaking so far? So the efforts I've been undertaking so far have been, you know, on behalf of a variety of political committees. I've brought lawsuits on behalf of the DNC, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and also various progressive uh, nonprofit organizations, um, just as a private lawyer representing clients. You know, for the post-election period, the Biden campaign will be one of those clients. Um, so the work I do for them is separate, obviously, from the work I do for for the other clients. Last question. Is there one election-related case that you're either most proud of or you thought about the most, you know, you've been involved in a, in a number of close recounts, including Al Franken in 2008 and Harry Reid in 1998. Does, does any one of those teach you more than the others? So this is going to, this may surprise you, but the case I am proudest of um, is a case actually just a couple of years ago. Um, we sued Mississippi. Mississippi had a law, uh, actually a state constitutional provision, that required that in order to be elected governor, or to other statewide state office, you needed to not only win the popular vote, but essentially you also needed to win a majority of the state legislative districts. Okay, it was sort of their own little mini electoral college. And this was put, this law, this constitutional provision was put into the state constitution as part of a racist, avowedly racist, like not hiddenly racist, um, effort to prevent the newly enfranchised black men that time it was only men um, of Mississippi from electing their candidates of choice. So, the white population of Mississippi convened an emergency elect, uh, emergency state constitutional convention in the 1890s to do this, and effectively was able to disenfranchise and keep African Americans from electing a black governor since then. And there's never been a black governor of, of Mississippi, um, in part because of this provision. And we we challenged this provision, and the court indicated that uh, the provision was almost certainly unconstitutional, was, was he was going to rule it unconstitutional, and gave the state of Mississippi an opportunity to correct it. So on the ballot this November is a constitutional amendment that will repeal that provision and move Mississippi to the normal process of whoever gets the most votes uh, wins. And it is actually the case I am most proud of because, um, you know, this was a, this was not about one election or one candidate. This was really a structural impediment in the Mississippi state constitution that, you know, had prevented generations of black leadership. Um, and so it is, uh, I, 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 on election day, I, I, or the day after the election, I will be checking a few results. I'll be checking the presidency. Obviously, I'll be checking the uh whether the Democrats have taken control of the Senate, and then obviously the the lead, the margin in the House, and then I'll be I'll be keeping eyes on this provision because I I hope Mississippians do the right thing in in um, in repealing that provision. Uh, it has bipartisan support to reveal that provision, so I'm I'm glad about that. Um, so that's the case I'm proudest of. You know, I lied. I have one more question because I just thought of it, and I don't know if you're involved in this at all, but felon reenfranchisement in Florida. Is there any merit at all under Florida law, to your knowledge, in the argument that Mike Bloomberg and others who are offering to pay the fines and penalties of former felons violates the law so that they're able to vote? No, there's no merit. I mean, there's no merit under state law. There's no merit under the federal vote buying scheme, which is the other thing that you hear Republicans talk about. Mike Bloomberg is trying to do just one of the most public goods that could be done in Florida, which is to help solve a problem that uh, 
has been created by the courts and by, you know, really cynical behavior on the part of the the Republicans uh, in the state. So, no, I don't think there's any merit to it. Um, and, you don't, and you don't think it'll be blocked? You think some of those people will be able to vote based on the Yeah, I think, the, I think the hardest thing is not, the hardest thing about it is not the legal action. The hardest thing is that the system is set up very often that these folks don't even know what they owe. Right, so if exactly. You, if you don't tell them <laughs> exactly. how much they owe, it's hard to pay it off. Yeah, we've likened it on the show before. You go to a restaurant and you have a nice meal and so you can't leave until you pay. Like, well, what do we owe? Like, we can't tell you. Right. So you can't leave. So you're, right. just, you're just imprisoned in the restaurant. You, Correct. Nobody would stand for that in any other kind of exchange or interaction in the country, but it is allowed to stand in Florida for these reasons that you've described. Correct. Mark Elias, thanks for joining the show. Thank you. My conversation with Mark Elias continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Try out the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. You'll get access to the full archive of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, audio essays by Ellie Honig and me, the United Security podcast co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, and the Cyberspace podcast hosted by John Carlin. In fact, on this week's episode, John is joined by Sean Henry, president of the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike, who breaks down the cyber threats to our upcoming election and the lessons from 2016. Check it out. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So this week, I want to close out the show with a shout out to the most, I think, loyal listener, not just of Stay Tuned, but also the Cafe Insider and United Security and Cyberspace and loyal reader of all the notes that we put out and basically all the content on Cafe. And that most loyal listener and reader is my dad. As some of you may have seen over the weekend on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, my dad turned 81 on Sunday. And as I also mentioned, my wife and I drove down to New Jersey, had a socially distanced lunch outside with my mom and dad, who were wearing Joe Biden vote masks. They're very careful, given their demographic. If you're curious, we ate at Cousins Seafood Clam Bar in Marlboro. I recommend it highly. There was a lot of chowder that was consumed. Uh, and my dad's favorite, lobster. After I posted the photograph of my mom and dad on the occasion of my dad's 81st birthday, there was a great response from a lot of folks. Some of you told me about your own dad, your own mom. Some of you told me that you had birthday celebrations near in time to my dad's birthday. Some of you talked about the loss of your mom or your dad and how you miss them very much. Some of the comments were especially warm. Somebody wrote, this is maybe my favorite comment, happy birthday to your dad. He looks simultaneously wise and youthful. I don't know if my dad caught that, but I wanted to make sure he got to hear that. So the day after I posted that photograph, my dad texts me, and he says, Preet, you're going to say thank you to each of the people who said happy birthday, right? <laughs> I said, Dad, there were literally thousands of people who wished him well. So rather than go one by one on the Twitter, which, by the way, is generally terrible, but on occasions like this is actually quite wonderful, thank you all for your good wishes for my dad. It means a lot to him. It means a lot to me. I'm lucky to have my parents, as many of you pointed out. And it's tough in the pandemic, and you don't get to see your loved ones as much. But it was a nice thing to see my mom and dad. And I love you, dad. I love you, mom. And everyone should take a moment sometimes when everything is terrible and many things are terrible uh, to appreciate your family. Because what's more important than that?
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Elias. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.